The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have everybody along as we, uh, what is tonight? It's Wednesday night, right? As we have our third fantastic program of the week. Looking forward to this discussion tonight with Mary Joyce. We're going to be talking about a lot of her work. She has done a tremendous amount of research on a number of topics, things ranging from ancient structure discoveries, things that she found on Google Maps, uh, UFOs, Bigfoot, similar discoveries on the surface of Mars, Antarctica, and other uh, really, really interesting topics. And we're going to try to get to as much of it tonight as possible when we bring her on remember to subscribe to our channels we are on facebook we are on you don't have to subscribe to facebook but a follow would be nice we are on twitch and we are on youtube both of those channels can be found by searching jv johnson and once you find them subscribe and or follow whatever is appropriate for the channel and also if you're inclined to support us on patreon it's a way to help uh help us make the program possible just go to patreon dot com slash Johaw J O H A W. You can follow the program there. You can uh, pledge an amount to support us, and that does help us bring the program to you every night. So we appreciate all of you who have done that already. All of you that will do that, and if you can't do that, we certainly understand too. We just like you to be part of the show, particularly in our chat room. So I'll say hello to all our chat room uh, folks tonight. Good to see you all there. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thank you for joining us tonight. Looking forward to a great program. By the way, tomorrow night will be a uh, Beyond Reality classic program for you. One of the uh, shows from the archives will be presented uh, for your enjoyment. We've got some great shows in the archives. And if you're not anxious to wait to hear those, you can always go to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. There's no fee to do that. And there is a tremendous uh, archive of programs there. I think we have something in the neighborhood of 600 programs there. You can also subscribe to the podcast version of the show. That uh, show gets downloaded something in the neighborhood of 10,000 times a day. So thank you to everyone who does that and supports us there. And the reason you do or the reason you're inclined to do that is because we have such terrific guests. And tonight is no exception. We're excited to have Mary Joyce with us. Mary has worked for two major metropolitan newspapers. She's also uh, written magazine articles and books. And since 2008, she's been the main researcher and editor for the skyshipsovercashiers.com website. Of course, that website features a wide variety of cutting-edge topics, things from UFOs to secret underground bases to Bigfoot to the Cherokee Little People. We're going to be talking about all of those things tonight with Mary. Mary, welcome to the, to the show. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you. I appreciate you, uh, the invitation. I also want to give you a plug. A lot of people uh, think that the things in the archives are, you know, outdated and not worth the time. I'm telling you, some of the best information has been discovered like a couple years ago, and people still don't know about it. And so I encourage your listeners and watchers to uh, check out your 
your archives. I know they can be very valuable. Well, thank you for doing that, But you, and you're also absolutely right. I actually go back and I listen to some of the old programs, particularly if I'm going to bring a, a guest back on, and I'm amazed at how relevant the information is, even if it's a year or two later. It's it's really good stuff for the most part, and uh, well worth the invested time, so thank you for saying that. I have to ask you, though, um, sky ships over cashiers. Now, when I first saw that, when I was uh, being introduced to your work, I thought, oh, what is this, you know? Uh, UFOs uh, following a Walmart uh, checkout clerks around, but no, Cashiers is a town, right? It's a it's a town on uh, a ridge top here in the mountains, and uh, it's it's pronounced Cashiers, but it's like a uh, gotcha. somebody that works at Walmart's. How they ever got that name for that town, I'll never know, but that's what it's called. Could it have been a, somebody's last name maybe at some point? I mean, no, I, no, yeah. I know that's not the, the answer because I thought it might be something simple like that too. I really need to find out. But um, um, anyhow, that's that's how it got its name. Um, this is how things grow. When we started, we were seeing so many UFOs over cashers. We thought that was all we were going to focus on. Things kept growing. Uh, we've had many, many Bigfoot um, encounters and evidence in the area. Uh, we have the little people. Uh, we have the underground bases. And so this... Um, Website, if I had had any sense to look into the future, would have had a different name. Um, it's an interesting area that you're talking about, where you live and what you're uh, writing about, uh, specifically how you started the website. But it is some, something's going on there, don't you think? There seems to be this convergence of all sorts of different paranormal phenomena, um, and it seems to all happen in that region, that part of North Carolina. Uh, I, when I moved here, I had no idea it would have so many mysteries to explore. And like I said before, the underground bases alone is fascinating. Um, in fact, uh, I got so interested in it that I dug up enough information and contacted enough uh, people with, like, top security clearance who could confirm some of this information that I actually put it into a book uh, with a very, very long title. Um, uh, but it's totally divided, I mean, devoted to... Um, uh, the underground facilities, and there are five that I write about in the book. But you've written several books. I think the one you're talking about there is Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains. Is that the one? That, that's correct. Yeah. Um, uh, great stuff and great work, by the way. Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about you and your work before we get into the specific topics we intended to talk about tonight, because you've done a tremendous number of things. Um, I guess my first question would be, when did these more curious topics, these more um, less definable topics from a mainstream standpoint become of interest to you? Uh, it really started with the UFOs when I was living on the beach, Cocoa Beach down in Florida. I was right between Patrick Air Force Base and the uh, Space Center. And, of course, I would see the launches, but I also got to know some of the engineers and one of the astronauts and began to find out that, uh, not, you know, that I really was seeing UFOs over the ocean and that the people at NASA, if you get to know them, uh, will admit that they're there. And uh, uh, I guess that's how it really started. And so the NASA folks will admit in a private conversation, but the... But the uh agency uh, policy, I would assume, is to deny. Um, you may be familiar with a man named Clark McClellan. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an astronaut. I don't, I don't know if he's still living or not. I know he's uh, uh, well past retirement now. 
but I met him right after the shuttle disaster, and his girlfriend was one of those who went down uh, when that crashed. Oh, jeez. And uh, I was just a very small group met with him uh, right after that. He was totally torn up, not only by her death, but that he had spoken out about seeing um, a very tall alien in the open bay of the space shuttle, um, and he made the mistake of talking about it. And his career was literally destroyed. And, you know, he, his, his uh, income was cut off, his career was cut off, and I think he, he struggled uh, a whole lot after that just to, you know, survive. It's a shame that that happens, and I think that that's been the uh, also the stigma associated with military uh, aircraft pilots or even commercial aircraft pilots. But it seems to be, and tell me if you agree with this, that we might be turning a corner here where some of these people are starting to speak out. Um, I think that when he went through all of that, it was much more constrictive than it is now. Um, I, perhaps they're slowly letting things leak out for the public to hear in dribs and drabs so that, you know, we poor folks can deal with it and not be shocked and um, dismayed by what's actually going on in the world. So, yeah, I think uh, more stuff is coming out. Plus, we have a lot of those people that were involved in those programs um, when they were young people and absolutely didn't want to give up their careers. Right. Once they retire um, or once they get close to realizing that they're really not mortal, I mean immortal, um, they get it off their chest and will start talking about it. Yeah, and I hate the phrase, but but the deathbed confessions. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was trying to. I stumbled because I was trying to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, as we look at the military starting to loosen up the reins a little bit uh, and allowing, you know, we've seen some videos recently that are military in origin that are very curious and actually, you know, are are really good examples of uh, some of the phenomena that we've all been talking about for a long time. Uh, and they're a little less like likely to deny it now. Uh, they still don't offer direct explanation. But do you think this is a coordinated effort by all governments? Or do you think that, for example, the U.S. military is just afraid that maybe this is actually terrestrial technology from uh, uh, an adversarial nation like China or something like that? I think, uh, no, I think that the military at the higher levels knows darn well know. yeah. uh, what is human origin and what isn't. Uh, I don't think they're confused about it. it. Back in World War II, back in the 40s, uh, that that certainly was the case. Yeah. But I don't think so now. Do you think they're working with uh, aliens and alien technology in any way? Uh, there was a story that we did not too long ago. I picked it up from the uh, Jerusalem Post right after it was posted, and uh, I'm, I'm pulling up my website here just to make sh- sure I can find it for you. But the man who was um, in charge of uh, space security for uh, Israel mm-hmm. uh, decided he was going to speak up on it. And one of the things that I found especially interesting is that he talked about um, cooperative efforts with the American astronauts and the aliens and I have found this, so I can give you a little bit of a quote here. Um, they have been they have been waiting for humanity to evolve and reach a stage where we will generally understand what space and spaceships are. There's an agreement between the U.S. government and the aliens. 
then I'll skip a little bit, one more sentence. There's an underground base in the depths of Mars where their representatives, meaning the aliens, are and also our American astronauts. And uh, this man, uh, again, was the head of Israel's security space program from 1981 to 2010. Uh, he's received uh, awards from Israel um, He's retired. He had no reason to put his neck out there uh, to be chopped off. And uh, uh, the Jerusalem Post is a fairly reputable source of information. And these are the types of admissions that are game changers. uh, That's the way I feel about it, yeah. Do you expect more of this as, you know, we march through the years here? And I don't mean in 40 years, but I mean in maybe three or four years? Uh, Yes, if we can get past... um, all the stuff that's uh, keeping us busy right now. Yeah. <clears throat> we are, I mean, our news right now is so limited to basically two or three subjects that I question if any of this kind of stuff's going to get out until uh, COVID and our politics get under control. Yeah, amen. That's such a great point, too. And I was noticing that as well. I mean, we, we, we know nothing about what's happening in the world. You can't really find any information because all media is so focused on these very narrow subjects. Um, and I hope that changes soon. Um, you have done some pretty interesting work, not just when it comes to maybe paranormal topics, but uh, you also did some research and writing about uh, and investigating about mob work in Detroit. Is that right? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I did some undercover work. Um, um, I, you know, we couldn't let people know that we were working for a newspaper. Right. And uh, uh, I was much younger then, so I could get away with uh, going into uh, the bars where the mob hung out. Um, I've been to the restaurant where uh, Jimmy Hoffa was hauled away. Um, by the way, they had really good food. But, um, um, you know, I, I got to see a lot of that stuff. I had a gun pointed at me. Oh, jeez. Um, one of the, the guys who was, um, actually, he was a good guy. And he had been beat up by the mob to the point where his feet actually pointed the opposite direction. Oh, and we went to um, visit with his folks to, you know, expand on a story. They lived above a, um, oh, I don't know, like a convenience store, liquor store, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you'd go up the side of the building, and then you'd enter their apartment on the second floor from the back. And so I walk in uh, with this other person who was involved with the, the project, and we were greeted by the man's parents. Well, everything went fine for just a minute or so. And then somebody comes down the hallway on my left uh, with a gun pointed at me. And it took me a second to figure out what was going on. He thought we were bad guys trying to, you know, cause trouble. And I had a, a badge in my pocket from having worked in the courts, you know, before that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, he thinks I'm a bad guy. So I had my hands up. I said, let me show you something. And I said, very slowly. And I pulled this out and showed it to him. I showed him the badge, and he put the gun away. But I want you to know, I think my heartbeat went a little bit faster then. Yeah, I can't imagine being in that situation. Does that make you rethink the types of uh, situations you put yourself into? Um. I don't know. It does make life interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, to say the least, to say the least. Um, but what was that, That uh, I think it was a Netflix movie that was 
uh, and I watched it. I just can't remember the title of it, but it was about Jimmy Hoffa and his disappearance. What was the name of that? Do you remember? I don't think I've ever watched it. It's just recent. They had a it had a quite a fanfare. I'll have my producer look it up. But um, I watched it. It was long, but it was really good. And Al Pacino played Jimmy Hoffa. Um, and uh, I, I learned more. I didn't really know the full scope of what had happened to Jimmy Hoffa, or at least what they speculate happened to, happened to Jimmy Hoffa. But looking into mysteries like that, that has to be some uh, gratifying, although probably frustrating work. Uh, it was really very interesting. I, my, most of my childhood was um, in Minnesota with lots of Swedes and Norwegians and German people. And um, then my folks, my last two years of high school, moved to Detroit. Well, Detroit became an education in so very many, many ways. And one of the uh, uh, one of my friends, who is a friend to this day, uh, we became friends in college. And her dad was involved with the mafia. And when I went to her wedding, all the big shot mafia guys were there with their uh, alligator shoes, and and uh, you know, <laughs> I was I was kind of impressed, but. Um, from what I can gather from her and what her father has kind of quietly said, I think Jimmy Hoffa is probably buried in cement. Yeah, that's what most people speculate. Uh, no, the... I mean, when you hear that from somebody who's actually in the mob, Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you, you get pretty convinced that, you know, and nobody's ever going to find him. Right, right. Yeah, that film was called The Irishman, by the way. And if uh, if you happen to have access to Netflix, and obviously you've lived part of this, uh, you might find it interesting. I probably should. Uh, the Irishman, I'll write it down in case I don't remember in the morning. Yeah, it's, it's a long movie, but it's again, it's really well done. It seems to have been, and, it's, and actually they have Robert De Niro in it as well and one of the things that they talked about when they were hyping this film is that they used computer graphics in some way to make Robert De Niro look like a young man in the early part of the film before he ages throughout the course of the film so uh, it has some some cutting edge technology as well so you know here you find yourself learning some things about some UFO activity you had some experiences in Florida you saw some things you got confirmation that what you were seeing was in fact UFO activity um, but that's not all you've uh, limited yourself to you have explored and written about things like Bigfoot um, Cherokee little people uh, as, as you talked about underground military bases secret bases in North Carolina I mean you've you've really broadened your horizon as to what you're interested in and what you write about uh, it's both a curse and a blessing, but uh, I was born with a huge curiosity, and that's one of the reasons that I really enjoyed working for newspapers, because um, as an editor, I could pick and choose anything I wanted to find out about. And um, curiosity uh, makes you a, I don't know, you find an awful lot of things that way. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, lament the fact that we don't seem to have as many curious journalists as we used to. Um, and I think part of that is is the uh, difficulties that local and regional newspapers have been having over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that my newspaper experience um, was when newspapers were still really big. And now the Internet has really shrunk newspapers all over the country. Even so, when you watch the, um, like, cable news on, on TV, they rely heavily on the footwork that's been done by reporters at the Washington Post and that's the true. New York Times. You know, they don't have their own crew out there doing the in-depth kind of work. They just pluck it from uh, the, the newspaper. And if the, if the newspapers can't get the advertising that they once had, well, they can't pay the people to do yeah. all of this. So we're really cutting off um, some good sources of information. 
Um, I don't want to go too far down this path, but I feel it's worthy of comment and I'd love to get your perspective on it. There's been a lot of discussion about how social media companies right now, which are and, and social media companies and Google, I'll throw them in there, are the conduit for so much of our information anymore. And they seem to be picking and choosing what information we'll get through. There's a lot of discussion about that. And, but I think that part of the, the discussion, part of the part that's lacking in that discussion, at least I haven't heard it is that, yeah, these are private companies. However, these private companies, because of their power and their, their monopolies have been able to force out of business thousands of independent voices, whether they're newspapers or even television and radio stations, um, they've just forced them out of the marketplace completely. And so that puts a particularly unique onus on those companies to be a little more fair and balanced, wouldn't you say? The newspapers had certain rules that they had to live within. And right now, the Internet is a little bit like the Wild West. Yeah. And it's going to have to be tamed and balanced out in some way or another. I know uh, as a radio station employee for a long time, and I actually ended up owning a bunch of radio stations for many years. Um, Which explains why you are so fluid on the microphone. <laughs> my, uh, uh, you know, the FCC used to regulate how many radio stations uh, a company could own, and they'd also regulate uh, cross-ownership of radio and TV and newspaper. And you, and you couldn't own, you know, too many of any one thing. And they did that because they recognized the importance of independent voices and making sure there were enough of them that you could get competing ideas. Regardless of what one person thought over here, you'll have somebody that thinks something else over there, and you'll get that point of view as well. And we've lost that. Right. And the big cities... and. Uh, used to have at least two newspapers right. that presented quite different points of view. Um, that, I don't think, is very much the situation anymore. Um, we could probably have a whole show about this, but one of the things uh, in bringing up the Internet, as you did, it really opens the door to the next part of our conversation here. You have discovered, in addition to a bunch of very interesting things that we'll talk, talk about, but you have discovered the power of a tool called Google Earth. For somebody who is is brand new to this, tell us what Google Earth is. Um, I've never had to define this before. Uh, Google Earth is something you can get on, anybody can get on their Internet, and it gives you um, views of any part of the globe, and you can zero in and, and see tremendous detail. Um, it also... With Google Earth, you can hit an icon and you can do the same thing with Mars. Uh, you can do the same thing with the moon. And the amount of detail that you can see is quite incredible. It's like you're flying over the world in a small plane uh, with a very, very good camera. It is really amazing. And, and from what I understand, Google takes satellite imagery, plus they take land imagery, you know, actual photographs and things that were taken on, on the surface of the Earth. They combine it all together. They've got some algorithms that makes it all match up properly. And you basically can look at any part of the Earth up close and personal, uh, you know, from the comfort of your computer in your home. Um, there's a story that will probably get posted, I don't know, maybe the end of the week or maybe next week, and let me pull it off here, it's right in front of me. Um, the title is Undersea Ruins Found by Stroke Survivor, and this gal who really, I think was in her late 40s or early 50s, she had a very severe stroke, almost died, and um, she now um, is, 
her profession, so to speak, is is using Google Earth and other uh, internet visual sources, uh, seeking anomalies. And so I wanted to encourage uh, what she was doing, and three of her um, discoveries will be posted uh, by next week at the latest. Are the Google Google Earth images um, static? In other words, once they're there, they're there, or are they ever-changing? Oh, well, uh, I don't know quite how to answer that. I do know that somebody associated with cover-ups does keep track of what we do on our website. Because if I, on the occasions where I've put up something um, that they really, they, whoever they is, uh, don't want us to to know, um, it will get the, it will be airbrushed out or it will be distorted or the coordinates will no longer work, sometimes within just a day of when we post things. Um, one example from Antarctica was that we found um, two major, in, well, actually more than that, but in the beginning, two major entrances into Antarctica. We're talking about entrances that are big enough for large jets to fly into with, you know, room to spare. And one of those, I figure, must be a very active entrance because, man, they, like, spilled India ink all over that um, almost immediately. And I am so grateful that I, you know, took a a shot of it and preserved it. Um, And if anybody's interested in that kind of thing, on our website, if you just type in Antarctica, a number of different articles will come up, and one of those um, is about those entrances. And the website is Skyships Over Cashiers. It's at least that's the way it's spelled: cashiers dot com. Um, and I've heard that from a lot of different people. People who have used Google Earth and found things, and then they go back a day or two later, and what, whatever they had found is no longer there. Um, that now I'll give you an example. We I've found a whole lot of things that are ancient ruins under the under the Pacific, off the coast of California. Those they're not blotting out. So ancient history they're not concerned about. Um, so, you know, that's still up there for everybody to see. As an adjunct to that, um, we've seen similar behavior by NASA and uh, images from the International Space Station. Absolutely. So it's not limited to just Google or or the same people are making the decisions on both. And I don't know who's doing that. I mean, obviously, it's somehow government related. All right. So you... Uh, at some point, recognize that Google Earth could be a tool for you to help find some of these things that we're going to talk about tonight and maybe get some answers. When did you have that realization? I don't really know. Um, I really don't know. It goes back a number of years. Uh, the most recent thing is when I've been exploring stuff along the California coast. And that started one day when my mind just kind of drifted off uh, about a story that uh, at least made... Um, I don't know, not primary news, but made the news about an underground uh, undersea ruin uh, that was huge off the coast of Malibu, California. And when I talk about huge, I'm talking huge. Uh, It's like it has a flat roof and then it has columns that, I don't know, it's hard to measure, but they're probably 600 feet tall. Um, The the roof of it is, uh, you know, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head anymore, but I think it's more than um, two miles. Yeah, it's two and a half miles um, across, which is huge. And so I thought, 
you know, maybe that's not the only thing along the coast of California. And so I just spent some time cruising with Google down the coast mm-hmm. and found four, um, a total, well, three other of these uh, underground structures. Uh, one of them, and I'll just mention these in case other people want to explore it. Uh, if you just type in um, Isla Coronado into Google Earth search bar, you will find this island, which is just south of San Diego. You don't even need the coordinates for this old uh, leftover ruin because it's bigger than the island itself, and it's to the west of the island. Um, Because everything's blue when it's underwater, uh, it looks like a a blue Twinkie. And around the edges, there are, it's like there's a portico around it. and, you know, it's definitely worth looking at. And it's like, I think, four four miles long. Wow. So that was one that I found. Another one I found um, was off, uh, let's see if I can remember where it was, off of between Long Beach and Huntington Beach. And when you look down on it, it looks like the footprint of some community. It has nothing but uh, right angles to it. And it's... Uh, 15 football fields in length. That's another thing that anybody can do using Google Earth. There's a way to measure things. And so you can get the exact length of things in feet or meters or inches or, you know, however you want to do it. But um, I chose to um, present it as 15 football fields because most people can envision a football field. Right, right. It puts it in perspective for them. Right. So when you decided to start look, looking for these things based on the discovery of the one near Malibu, did you just painstakingly zoom in and kind of go, you know, meter by meter along the coast of California? Is that how you did it? Um, I didn't have to go that slowly, but yeah, that was basically the principle of it. And once I, there's kind of, if you look on Google Earth, there's sort of like, there isn't, I shouldn't say it that way, there's a shelf that's beneath the water um, and so these structures are along that shelf. After you've explored and found these additional structures uh, that added to the one that was discovered, I think it was in 2014, right? Somewhere in there? That's correct. Yeah. Um, do you have any speculation or maybe even uh, conviction as to what these things are? There's, there's all sorts of legends about um, a continent that sunk into the ocean it's known as Lemuria sure. or Mu mm-hmm. or uh, Pan. And you have to think that maybe that was a reality. Another thing that supports that is there are these great ruins off of Japan. Um, the island, which is in the western part of Japan, is called Yanaguni. And we're talking structures, not just the ruins, but we're talking uh, megalithic structures that look like something that you would find near a pyramid in South America. And so anybody who uh, looks at some of those photos will have to open their minds to the possibility that there was once an an ancient structure uh, or civilization, I should say, um, in the Pacific. Well, I mean... if somebody wants to look it up, there's lots of photos. I'll spell it for people. Sure. Um, It's it's pronounced Yanaguni, and it's Y-O-N-A... G-U-N-I. And if you type that in, you should, uh, and then under sea ruins, you should be able to find them. It's not 
far-fetched at all to believe that uh, some type of ancient civilization could have existed along the coast of California and sunk into the ocean, given the fact we know how uh, volatile uh, the Earth is in that part of the world. I mean, earthquakes and the fault lines are very, very active, and they have been for a very long time. So that's certainly not uh, out of the question in any way. Uh, Absolutely. And then um, when I was doing research, you find out that there's... um, support for it that comes in ways you don't expect. For example, the, the uh, continent was known also as Pan, P-A-N. Mm-hmm. I found 52 words from 15 countries where Pan is, par- is part of the vo- vocabulary. I mean, that's got to say something right there. When you start seeing it across uh, uh, cultures, um, you have to believe there's some ancient knowledge of this stuff. Right. It goes from, uh, like, India and Indonesia and Japan down to uh, South America, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Guinea, you know. And as you looked at these, as you started to measure them, I mean, something with a roof of, what would you say, a mile and a half, two miles long, uh, in some cases larger than that, I mean, these are not just ordinary uh, structures. These aren't homes. These aren't, um, I guess, what you know, public buildings. They're they're gigantic. What could they have possibly been used for? Um, there's a couple theories. Uh, one is uh, the original one that was found off of Malibu in 2014 is in an area where there have been lots of reports of UFOs and UFOs disappearing under the water. Mm-hmm. So some people have speculated that the UFOs are disappearing into something like this. Um, that can only be speculation. And let me just interrupt you. If that's the case, then these might be contemporary structures and not ancient structures necessarily. Um, this is the only one because of the UFOs that might be still active. Mm-hmm. The other places look more like ruins. Okay. It's it's incredible to 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 think and certainly to comprehend the idea. First of all. One, that that um, we have UFO activity that is uh, uh, below the surface of the water, and there might be bases there. I mean, we've heard more and more reports of this type of activity. You know, that is not so difficult to believe for the simple reason that if a vehicle is impervious to the air, why wouldn't it be impervious to the water? Right. I mean, we have a whole new genre of, of discussion, I think, when we start talking about USOs, right? Well, I, I actually won't choose to use that word for the most part because they're just UFOs. They're right. UFOs that simply have gone under the water. And when, they, when people give it um, a, a different letter, um, it implies it's somehow it's something different, different, right? but it's not. As you uh, uncovered these, you started to look at them, and you're analyzing them, and you're sharing this information with other people. What type of reaction did you get? I, most, uh, I find people very curious about this. Sure, they have to be. They should be, anyway. And, and I've gotten in contact uh, with, uh, well, like the, uh, the gal that had the stroke. Uh, her caretaker contacted me, telling me, because she can't talk, um, telling me about what she was discovering. And I thought... There's two reasons to post that story. One is to encourage somebody who is really greatly debilitated by a stroke uh, that they can still find things to do that are worthwhile, and I wanted to encourage that. So, um, you know, then I was contacted by uh, somebody who you may know, Colin 
um, or Colin Andrews. Uh, he is the man who's known as the primary researcher for crop circles in mm-hmm. England. Yep. And he contacted me with um, uh, coordinates uh, to check out. And so I'll be posting uh, things that I discovered when I expanded out from the coordinates that he gave me. I've end up finding three different things. Oh, wow. Um, speaking of other things and other places, um, talk to us about the ancient pyramids off the coast of Florida. Oh, the, when I lived in Florida, I was at uh, the pier in uh, Cocoa Beach with a friend, and we were just having a drink in the bar on the pier. Got into a conversation with a couple who I'm guessing were probably 30, early 30s maybe, and they were so excited because they were deep-sea divers, and they were talking about how they had been off the coast of Vero Beach after a storm, and they had seen the upper part of a pyramid off of Vero Beach. Well, that was ages ago, and I just kind of filed that in the back of my head. Um, then I did more research on it, and I found out that uh, later, since I've had the website, and... Um, one of the guys, he, he was known as Buster, and he worked with um, the Atosha Discoveries down in Key West with um, Mel Fisher. And he would take a small plane and fly real low over the water whenever there had been a storm because the storm stirs up the sand. That's right. And uh, then they often make discoveries that way. And he found... Um, a square pyramid that he said was about, um, a, I think he said a thousand square feet, maybe, with a flat top roof, and uh, he, he has a good, you know, a good reputation, which is the reason I wrote about him. So there's been things that are out there that simply do not get discovered unless you're just lucky enough to be flying low. Yeah. Uh, there's been three pyramids on the west side of the Gulf Stream that have been found that I know of, and three on the um, east side of it. Uh, again, sometimes they're visible and sometimes they're not. And in again, speculating, because it's really all we can do at this point, uh, do we have an idea of what their origin might be? From everything that I have ever been exposed to regarding these things, there was an ancient civilization uh, in the Atlantic, and there was an ancient civilization in the Pacific um, that have either sunk or been submerged by rising waters, one or the other. Um, that's my basic theory about it. I mean, because we also have you know existing uh, uh, terrestrial um, pyramids in Central America uh, that we can point to, and they're beautiful structures. And is there any chance that they could be related? Uh, absolutely. The pyramid seems to be universal. I mean, we keep finding them in the in places we don't expect to even hear hear about them. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, there was a world civilization that had a whole lot in common. Mary, the Earth is a big, pretty big place, and if you have to uh, go square by square on Google Earth to find this stuff, you've got a lot of ground to cover. Well, I'm not going to do that all the time. It'll <laughs> make me crazy. Um, I try to keep variety uh, both in what I do personally and also in what I put on the website. How much do you think we have yet to discover when it comes to things like this? I think there's still a whole lot more out there to find. You haven't limited these searches to Earth either. Talk 
about Mars because this is what I guess many of us consider to be maybe the next frontier uh, as we start talking about manned uh, space flights to Mars. What are they going to find when they get there, and what have you found? Again, I was amazed, and and uh, you, it's hard to find things on Mars for for a number of different reasons. One is because the strips of um, uh, what else, what do you call it? Photographic scripts, mm-hmm. uh, strips strips uh, make it kind of chopped up compared to what you can see when you look at the Earth. But there is a lot to be discovered. Um, we found. Um, huge entrances that look like entrances uh, to a huge warehouse. Um, One of them um, that I actually got the measurements on was 3,700 feet high and 520 feet, uh, 528 feet wide. That's a huge, huge entrance. It sure is. And they're not ancient. I mean, they're cut... Uh, they look like, you know, what lintels are, like the post and the lintel of a doorway. Yep. It's built, they're built like that, and there's more than one of them. And though they have the same basic structure, they don't all have the same dimension. So that was one of the things that I found just cruising, um, you know, with Google Earth, Mars. Um, let's see. When you, before you move on to the next thing, when you say entrances into Mars, are they going into the into the the, the subsurface of Mars? Or are they yes. going into maybe hillsides that look like structures? It's it's like a hole into the interior of the planet. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, another thing I found very interesting, and we have found two of them, and they look like biospheres. There's one in the region of the North Pole and one in the region of the South Pole. And the reason I concluded that these shapes look like biospheres is um, I learned about the work of, I'm going to mess his name up, but his name is Brian Verstig. It's it's V-E-R-S-T-E-E-G. And he's a conceptual architectural engineer and artist who's worked for Deep Space Industries, He's worked for the Mars Foundation, um, a Mars Exploration Magazine, and there is um, a drawing that I have posted of his on the website. And the basic shape of it is like what we found on Mars. Of course, on Mars, it's it's quite a bit blurry compared to you know what he did, but it certainly gave confirmation that that. Uh, it could very well be a biosphere. Then you combine that with what we talked about earlier with the uh, Israeli space expert, yep. um, you know, and you go, wow. Um, another thing I found was um, um, a UFO, and the, picture, the image was taken from 20 miles above the surface, and the ship, uh, using the measurements, uh, is about three and a half miles across. So we're we're talking about a, a big ship. Another one that I found real recently, and is probably still on the home page of our website. And on the home page, on the right hand side, um, it it mentions the um, most recent um, postings. And the title of it is simply "UFO Skids to a Stop on Mars." Um, the skid mark is uh, four thousand four hundred and twenty-two feet long. And the ship itself is uh, 406 feet by 367 feet. 
um, it looks a little bit like it's got um, heat marks from it, you know, doing a crash landing. And there's even uh, something that looks like a reflection from the ship, not only on the ship itself, but it reflects down on the surface of the planet. So that one is something you can probably find just by going to the, you know, cover page of the of the website. Yeah, I, I do want to stress that um, I, I look through a lot of this on your website, Mary, and you do a great job of presenting it and offer some explanations and some detail. Um, and anybody can go there and look. And again, the website is very simple to find. It is Skyships Over Cashiers is the way it's spelled, dot com. Um, Skyships Over Cashiers dot com. And uh, you present it all there very nicely with pictures and, and everything. Um, as we start speculating about Mars, um, you know, we've had some... Uh, success with some rovers we've seen some things um, um, come back that are some amazing images of the surface of the red planet Um, but we still have um, a nasa that says they haven't found anything that indicates to them there's any kind of life or activity on there is this is just more of the same um, denial that we get with the ufo story here on earth um i don't i can't give you the title off the top of my head but there is uh, a conference that's held every year, I think, in D.C., and it's about Mars, and it's about the future. Like, what's it going to be like in the future with Mars? I'm telling you that when they start talking about stuff in the future, it already is known. It is. It already exists. Is it known by the people that are having the discussion? or I don't know. There's no way I would know that, know, but yeah. I would think many people who would attended would assume that they're only hearing about things that will happen someday. And uh, as for the people that put on this kind of a conference, I would think they probably know. Right. But that's only a guess. Right. Probably a good guess. Uh, One of the most mysterious places in the solar system still to us is right here on Earth, and that's Antarctica. We've talked about it a little bit. Uh, There are so many mysteries about Antarctica. Why is it such a mysterious place to us, other than the fact it seems to be very inhospitable? Um, Oh, God. You can get into a whole, I don't know, three-hour show about all the stuff that might be going on Mm -hmm. in Antarctica. Um, and the entrances that I mentioned, those are going into the interior. Uh, a third entrance that I didn't mention to you um, has like a runway approaching it. There's like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to remember how much it would be, um, but, but it's like runway lights, and then you end up at this entrance. Really? And these runway lights... Um, Two of them are lit up. They give off a yellow glow to them. And, uh, you know, there's stuff going on beneath the planet right now. Um, I don't know. It's a really deep, deep subject. Uh, One of the most recent things that I have found is because the ice is melting, and we found a disk that you can see at least half of it uh, that's being revealed uh, just because the ice is melting. And people will find this surprising that... uh, one of the biggest clusters of volcanoes is on the western part of Antarctica. And the according to, now there's no way I can tell you this for sure, I simply do not know, but there are those who say that the um, volcanic tubes that are formed, um, 
are under are being used as underground bases or expanded upon. One of the things we know about Antarctica is that there is an international treaty that prohibits any basically anybody from going there. Are these uh, governments, including the U.S. government, uh, aware of what's actually happening there? And is that the purpose of the treaty? The only understanding I have of the treaty is that nobody can own Antarctica, and so you have research stations there from many different countries. Mm-hmm. That's the only agreement I'm aware of. Um, you must know more than I do. Uh, I'm just remembering what other guests have talked about on the program um, and talking about that uh, that treaty as being something that really prohibits any real exploration of Antarctica. But maybe maybe that's misguided as well. Um, you know, this just seems to be an amazing tool. The, Google Earth is something that everybody can use. But I think some of these, or at least one of these discoveries you made on Antarctica was removed, wasn't it? Um, I'm trying to remember. I've had stuff removed. Yeah. Uh, that one entrance, it, you can still find. I have the coordinates, and you can still go and find it. But it's, like I said, somebody dumped Indian right. ink on it, so you can't see it anymore. <laughs> um, I suspect that's just because it, there's, it's active, and they don't want people to see it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, once again, then you have to get into the idea that uh, these tech companies, at least Google, uh, is in on the secret in some fashion, and they are also protectors of the secret. Um, and, uh, boy, that's that's some scary stuff when you get those uh, government tech combinations controlling the information we can and cannot see. You know, most people who I feel like have common sense, I feel like they're sandwiched between two extremes. You have the people who take conspiracy theories to the extreme in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. and then you have legitimate cover-ups by governments, and, you know, those aren't really conspiracies. That's reality. It's it's gotten so muddled because, uh, you know, anybody can put up their theory now, and then somebody else repeats it, and then everybody else begins to believe it. And I get kind of sick and tired of some of the conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, it does get tiring after a while. Uh, an hour goes quickly here, and there's a couple other topics I want to get to. Um, I want to know a little bit more about your work on the Cherokee Little People. Um, that's a book, well, I didn't intend to write that book. Um, when I moved to North Carolina, I had never heard of the Cherokee Little People, and when I began to hear about them, I thought, um, you know, they were just old Indian campfire stories. Right. And there was a, um, he's no longer living now, but uh, there was a man who was a World War II hero. He'd been a pastor in this area for over 40 years, uh, well-respected, and I kind of became friends of with him, you know, from where I worked at the time. And he said, no, they were real. And when he was a young man right after World War II, he was involved with construction projects at Western Carolina University, which is here in North Carolina mountains. And he said um, when they would cut into what was supposed to be virgin soil to build a new building, they would find these little tunnels. And they were always cut into real dense red clay They were square-cut. They had a rounded or arched roof or top to them, uh, which makes them stronger. Right. And um, they were about three and a half, no more than four feet tall. And whenever construction was being done around that campus, they were finding these little tunnels. They also found um, a little skeleton that I'm I'm aware of. One professor... um, kept a small skeleton, or not skeleton, skull on his 
uh, desk, and he said it was a skull from the um, uh, Indian mound. Well, an English teacher came in one day, looked at it real closely, and said, this is not a child's skull. It has all its wisdom teeth. So um, um, I, I became convinced that these little creatures, not creatures, these little people really did exist. And um, I ended up spending my Saturdays for quite some time uh, visiting with these old-timers. So the original man connected me with other people, and they would never have talked to me if he hadn't initiated it. And so over kitchen tables, I would uh, tape record conversations with these uh, different gentlemen and uh, recorded their stories for the simple reason that nobody else had done it. Yeah. So they were all pretty elderly by the time I met them, and I thought... God, if I don't write this down, it's going to be gone when they die. That's right. So um, that's uh, how that book got written. You mentioned, um, you know, when you first were introduced to this idea, you thought they were just, you know, uh, Cherokee campfire stories or something like that. Are the, uh, do, the, do these little people exist throughout Cherokee legend and lore? They do. They do. And when I wrote the book, um, the, the, the title is Cherokee Little People Were Real. I wouldn't use the past tense now because oh. um, I've had several things happen where it looks like there's still a few of them to be found. Uh, there was one uh, Indian woman in her late 20s. Uh, again, she wouldn't have talked to me except I was a friend of her friend, and her friend convinced her to tell me. And she talked about a place in a remote part of the reservation where her family would go for uh, picnics and, you know, reunions, and they had a um, little trailer set up at this location so they would have a kitchen and a restroom. And so that she was one of the kids who was playing hide-and-go-seek, and she decided she would go hide in the shower of the little trailer. And when she pulled back the curtain, there was a little Cherokee person, little man, uh, just grinning back at her. <laughs> Uh, which scared the you-know-what out sure, of her. She ran yeah. to her daddy. but uh, um, And then she talked about her aunt and uncle living in an even more remote area of North Carolina, not on the reservation. And um, they had, he, her aunt and uncle talked about the little people around where they lived. And to prove it to her, the uncle uh, dusted flour. I don't know, it was on the kitchen floor, it was on the, on the porch or something, and they just dusted it, and the next morning you could see these little footprints because some of the old Cherokee people will still put food out for the, for the little people. Wow. Uh, are these little people, are they small humans? Are they yes. some kind yes. of different species? Okay, so they're, no, they're not no, su- they're, supernatural. No, no, they're not little fairies or anything like that. They are typically about uh, three feet tall, maybe three and a half at the most, um, and they look they're called Cherokee little people because they look very much like the Cherokee people. And based on the tunnel uh, stories that you told us, I imagine they, they are somewhat subterranean and, and that's where they live. When the Cherokee uh, first came here and they came, they migrated, I don't know how long ago from uh, the great lakes region, they would find these little gardens that were well tended, but they didn't see any people around. And they eventually uh, saw these little people coming out at night to tend the gardens and they called them the moon people because they mm-hmm. would come out at night. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was the original name that the uh, the people were given. Um, these these are amazing stories. So glad that that you uh, took the time to explore and write about this because as you said we lose a lot of these th- these ideas these concepts to time now i imagine if there's still some of these around we still may have an opportunity to you know continually to collect evidence and get more stories but uh, this is something i had not heard about until i was introduced to your work uh yeah and there was one other and i know we're run out of time haven't we we've got about, uh, we've got about uh eight minutes oh okay so i can talk fast all right no i can do that <laughs> um there's a couple that live on another on a mountain ridge not too far from where I live, and um, they hesitated a long time before they told me about what they'd gotten on their game cam, and they, the game cam picked up a kind of like a little figure in the woods across from where their their home is, which is, again, on a gravel road on a mountaintop, and one of them thought it was a spirit, one of them thought it might be a little person, and they finally decided they would show it to me. And what I did was I turned, I put it on the computer, I turned up the intensity of the color mm-hmm. because anything that's alive will go to magenta. And if it's a spirit or a ghost, it will stay in the white-gray realm. And this went magenta. And just to um, kind of make my point when I did the article, I got a, ho- a photo that is considered to be a legitimate ghost photo, and it's a a ghost, um, human-formed ghost, on its hands and knees, playing with a, a real live child. And so when I turned up the intensity of that, the little child went to magenta, and the ghost stayed white. Wow. So we did, um, then the couple also uh, went kind of marked the height of this little person against a tree, and... Um, that you know, it fell right into the size for the little people, which is you know three, three and a half feet tall. Wow. So that was, I mean, I'd done the research with these uh, elderly witnesses uh, long before these pictures. I mean, it took forever. That's the only picture we've ever gotten of, of somebody who might be a little person. Speaking of pictures and speaking of being elusive, uh, you've done and written about Bigfoot. Talk to us a little bit about Bigfoot, specifically the Bigfoot activity in the area you are, because I know there are a lot of sightings and reports of sightings uh, in that particular region. Uh, yes, we have. Uh, we get multiple reports of Bigfoot here in the mountains, if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Um, but what type of uh, anecdotes or experiences have you had in your research and, and looking into Bigfoot as a, uh, again, an elusive creature, one that uh, you know we keep hoping we're going to get um, physical evidence and really good pictures, and some are good, some are okay, but we don't still don't get the smoking gun that everybody's looking for. Uh, first of all, let me mention the the name of the book that I've done because mm-hmm. I, I, it's a book that's different than the Bigfoot books you usually see. It's called Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints, and what I have, I mean, this has been extensive research, and the Bigfoot are like distant cousins of we humans, and they have some wonderful, um, good human qualities. And I will tell you one cute story that will give you an idea. There's a woman uh, who lives in South Carolina who's had Bigfoot uh, around her land, you know, practically all of her life. And she is so good at uh, communicating with them that she was actually invited to Siberia uh, to do uh, some of the research there with the Bigfoot. 
Um, so that gives you some idea of her credentials. Mm. And she had a pony. And every morning the pony would be gone, even when she had it roped down. And um, when she would find it, it would be out in the woods. And not only was it out there in the woods around her land or on her land, uh, the uh, feed bowl and the water container would be out there with the pony. And one day when she went out there to retrieve the pony, she saw uh, little um, muddy handprints and butt prints on the pony. The Bigfoot were taking their children for rides on the pony. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm tired of hearing just the monster stories about yeah. Bigfoot. And there are a lot of very, um, uh, like, heartwarming stories about them. There's a lot of lot of reason and a lot of evidence to believe they're compassionate and caring creatures. Um, yes, and I, I write about um, uh, at least one or two stories where the Bigfoot have actually um, saved people and helped people. Um, you know, we often hear the stories of people in the out in the woods, and uh, you know they'll hear these menacing howls or noises, snorts, whatever it happens to be, and then they'll be branches and, and knocking and, and branches breaking and then stones being thrown. What's that all about, do you think? They're just trying to make people go away. And when they throw the stones, they don't hit the people. They right. just, you know, land close to the people. The sounds are done oftentimes just to intimidate the people. And if I were, if from what I know about humans, um, I would be trying to scare them away from my territory, too. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, we have some folks that believe that there's some kind of interdimensional quality to Bigfoot, which was, was one of the explanations for them being so elusive. Do you uh, believe any of that? Um, I have. I will not come down positively one way or the other. Mm-hmm. There's some very convincing information from some people who you know have set up sites for them. They may very well have that ability. They certainly have the ability to be intuitive and read people and read their intentions, um, even at a distance. And that's why the people that show up with guns and stuff and cameras are probably not going to ever catch them. Right, right. And there's also discussion, and probably I think I hear this a little more often now than I used to, uh, that there might be some type of extraterrestrial connection to Bigfoot. Any thoughts on that? Can't rule that out because we're seeing so many of the uh, reports in the same areas we see the UFOs. Well, that is that's curious to me too, and and that is certainly true. We have often we'll have UFO sightings and then Bigfoot sightings right in the same area, uh, contemporary to uh, contemporaneously to each other. Uh, so that is a really curious phenomenon. It is. It is. What's ne- What's next for you, Mary? I mean, you, you're doing stuff all the time. Um, you know, well, I've been slowed down a little bit with COVID. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we just can't get out and do uh, as much as I would like. Yeah, that I think that's affected everyone. This is kind of like the year that wasn't, isn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean the, the 21's not sounding so different from 20. It really isn't, and that's, that's really discouraging. But um, at least, as you, you pointed out very aptly here, you can do a lot of work from your computer, your smartphone these days, and that's helpful. Um, you've got several books. We've talked about Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints. We've talked about underground military bases hidden in North Carolina mountains. We've talked about Cherokee little people were real. And then uh, what's the other one that I see listed here? Tangible evidence of Jesus. 
uh, yeah, the, that's the short title. Long title is Tangible Evidence of Jesus Left Behind for Us to Find. It's concrete uh, evidence that's been found by archaeologists and, you know, people of that elk um, that um, give a, a, a different dimension to Jesus than what we see in the Bible. You, um, Your work and all your books are listed on the website, I presume? If you look under Editor's Corner, you can. there's a little bit of a summary and a picture of the cover of each book under Editor's Corner. And all the books are available through Amazon. That's terrific. Mary, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Your work is fantastic, and you present it all in a way that's easy to understand for people, too, and that's helpful as well. So thank you for being here. I hope you'll uh, come back and join us again sometime. All righty. You have a good evening. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.